our Bibles and uh, open them up, if you would, with me to the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter. And the title of the message this morning is Glory. Glory. I just want to give you uh, the heads up after the message is over. Since we're talking about worship today, uh, we're going to uh, just worship for uh, just a few minutes after the service. So don't check out on us. Uh, use the message time as uh, a preparation uh, for that time of, of worship at the end of the service. Uh, Revelation chapter 4. Let's read together verse 1. If you have it in your Bible, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. We're going to read through, study through the entire chapter. So I'm not going to take the time uh, to read the whole chapter right now. We'll get through it all. So keep your Bible open to Revelation chapter 4. I don't think we're moving off of that uh, this morning. Have a note section open in your program to help you be able to follow along, and that would be really, really good. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice I had, uh, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." As you know, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, my, my preaching goal for uh, the year 2013 is to create eternity-focused disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a reason for that. I realize that eternity focused disciples of Jesus experience so much of the abundant life that most people do not experience. And so we're talking about that as we move through uh, uh, this year. What I really want to see occur and happen in my life and in your life and then in the life of this church, I mean this with all my heart, now I want us to regularly experience the glory of God in our midst. Now what does that look like? It means God shows up in your life and you can say, this last week, God did this in my life. I know it wasn't something I did. It was something that was so out of the ordinary that I knew God showed up in my life. And I want to see that happen in this place of worship regularly as we come together, that we leave with a sense, not just, hey, I heard some songs, or I heard a good message this morning, but I experienced the presence of the Lord God Almighty in my life this week uh, at church. Now, i got to tell you, I grew up in a church that didn't have any expectation of that whatsoever. As one writer I read the other day uh, described uh, his church experience, I realized that was the church that I grew up in too. He said, I grew up in a church that specialized in shoulders-up worship. You understand what I'm talking about? Man, we were real good about singing songs that had great theology. We went through all the process, and it was very orderly. Uh, you know, our minds could get around it, and we understood all that was going on. But from shoulders down, there was very little connection. I'll put it to you this way. We were real strong in worshiping in truth, but very weak on worshiping in spirit. Anybody experienced that before? Let's talk about that this morning. From time to time, I hear people say, you know, I don't really like worship. As a matter of fact, I just soon show up after the singing's done so I can hear the important stuff going on, the teaching from the Word of God, so that I can uh, receive something that day. Can I tell you this, and I mean this with all of my heart. Folks, worship is not about you or me. Worship is about God and the Lord Jesus Christ, period. That's all it is. It's not about what we receive. It's not about what we like. 
It's not about what we are blessed by, although all of those things can be side benefits, but true worship is focused about God and about what he likes. Psalm chapter 22 verse 3 says God is enthroned on the praises of his people. John chapter 4 verse 23 says true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth and the Father is looking for those kinds of individuals who will worship him that way. Folks, you don't have to seek out God and hunt for God. You worship him in spirit and in truth and God will come find you I heard someone once say. Now this morning I want to talk about two things in worship from Revelation chapter 4. The first I want to talk about the position of God in our worship, and then I want to talk about the posture of worship, really the posture of the worshipers. The first eight verses of this section talk about the position of God in our worship. It says in verse 1, read this, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, John didn't open the door. It was open for him. There are a lot of hot books out these days uh, about individuals that can say, man, I I went to heaven and I came back and this is what I experienced. Well, I don't know about the truth of all those books, but I do know the scripture points out that there are five people that I can find that saw heaven, literally saw heaven, and came to describe it for us. Let me name them for you. Number one, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, I saw the uh, Lord seated on the throne high and exalted, and his train uh, of his robe filled the temple. That's Isaiah chapter 6. Second, Ezekiel had a very definite uh, uh, understanding and look into heaven itself. In Ezekiel chapter 1, you read, uh, he says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now that is a fascinating passage of Scripture, and I would encourage you, if you have never read or hadn't read that in a long time, I would encourage you to go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and read about how Ezekiel described looking into the very throne room of God. It's fascinating. It'll blow your mind. Uh, you'll be reading that. You'll say, that you remember that's the section. talks about that wheel within a wheel and all that sort of thing. You say, what does all this mean? You know, could you try to describe the indescribable and put it down on paper in a way that everybody can understand it? No. Ezekiel's trying to describe something that he had never uh, seen before, uh, difficult to understand, and, and he was struggling that way. But Ezekiel was number two. Daniel was the third person that we read about in the Bible who looked into heaven and got a glimpse of heaven. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, he said, I looked, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. Clothing, his clothing was as white as snow, and his throne was, flame, throne was flaming with fire, and thousands attended him, and ten thousands times ten thousands were before him. Daniel chapter 7, 9 and 10. Paul was number 4. Do you remember him? Paul, number 4, he was the apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 10. He describes a man who was caught up into the third heaven. He said, I saw things that, man, nobody else had seen before, and it, just, it was crazy thing I've ever seen in my life. And remember, that's a place that uh, he said, Lord, would you take away the, the, the thorns in my flesh? And God said, no, 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 that's not for you to have happen to you. My grace will be sufficient uh, in your weakness. Now, I've named five, four, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul. Hadn't named the fifth. Ought to be the most obvious to us. Who was the fifth person that saw, experienced heaven, and came to earth? Of who? Jesus. 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 What a fascinating story. 
Well, well John here uh, uh, would be the sixth, I guess you would have to say, and he saw that and understood what heaven was all about. Now, in verse 2, we read this. It says, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. A throne in heaven. I didn't realize the significance of that phrase until I began realizing the numbers of times that phrase is used in the book of Revelation. Folks, 48 times in the New Testament, the throne of God is described. A throne is described. 36 of them is found in the book of Revelation. All but three of those descriptions in the book of Revelation all describe God's throne. The throne of God is a symbol of God's sovereign rule, his authority, fixed for all time in heaven. Just a few of those uh, verses in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, God's throne is a source of salvation. Revelation 7, 15 to 17, the throne of God is a place of comfort and strength. Revelation chapter 12, verse 15, the throne of God offers protection to the people of God. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, the river of life flows from the very throne of God. Now, whether you understand or know or believe this, every person who has ever lived, and that includes you, will see the throne of God one day. You know how I know that? In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 through 15, it says we will all stand before that great white throne of God. And we'll all be judged, all be judged. Those who accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of our life will go to heaven. Those who have not will go to hell, and, uh, but we will all see it. Now, verse 3, he goes on, he gives, continues the description of God, uh, uh, the, the, the position of God in heaven. It says, verse 3, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, or a, a ruby, and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Jasper looked like a diamond, it's clear and uh, you know, pristine, while as uh, a ruby is, is red, of course. Now, God doesn't do anything by chance. Did you realize that when God determined the, the breastplate that the high priest in the Old Testament would wear, there were 12 stones on that, on that breastplate? Did you know that? The Bible says in Exodus 28 and verse 17 that the first and the last stones on that are the jasper and the ruby or carnelian. I saw a rainbow. Did you ever stop and wonder why it was that God chose the rainbow to be the sign of the covenant to Noah that he would never destroy the world again. Well, the Bible says the rainbow encircles the throne of God all the time. And could it be that in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 13, God was so uh, focused on the brilliance of the rainbow colors about his throne. He said, every time I see one of those on the earth, I'm going to remember the promise that I made with uh, Noah. Now the Bible says that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, chapter Exodus 3, uh, verse 3. Ezekiel describes God as brilliant light, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, God is called an all-consuming fire, the brilliance of God. Now, verse 4, we move on to uh, 24 individuals that are described in verse 24. 
It says, surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and uh, had crowns of gold on their head. Now, uh, we'll talk more about the elders as we go through this study of the book of Revelation, so I don't want to really go into any detail about them at all. But I just want to tell you that every single time, every time we see these 24 elders in the book of Revelation, they are always worshiping. They are always worshiping. They're worshiping God, they're worshiping His judgments, or they're worshiping, we'll see next Sunday, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who was slain. Now verse 7 goes on, or verse 5 goes on, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the sevenfold spirits of God. Lightning and thunder have always been associated with God's presence. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, as uh, Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God, it says that the, the mountain was covered with a cloud and lightning and thunder rumbled so much that it terrified the Israelites and no one would, uh, except for Moses would step out to go. We read that uh, uh, also lightning and thunder are also uh, combined and, uh, with the wrath and the judgments of God. Write down Revelation 11, 19 and 16, 18. And you'll see that the wrath or the judgment of God causes lightning and thunder uh, from time to occur. Now, I'm not talking about uh, just the lightning and thunder that we hear every day. I'm not talking about that. But we notice that in heaven, this lightning and thunder occur. By the way, I just thought of this. Remember in the, the book of Job in the Old Testament when Job was just letting God have it for all the problems that he was having? Why, God, did you do this stuff to me? Do you remember that God spends three chapters asking Job a whole series of questions? Uh, you know, where were you when I did? One of the questions is, Job, can you explain to me uh, the source of the lightning, you know? Can you explain to me uh, where the uh, currents of the storms come from? Well, God can. He created them all. In verse 6, we read an interesting statement about the sea of glass. He said, also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass as clear as crystal. I was talking with our resident uh, uh, sh uh, ship captain, Don Brady, my uh, 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 prayer uh, advocate for me, and uh, uh, he, he and I were talking one day, uh, and I'd been preaching about Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, said, uh, in the new heaven and new earth, there will no longer be any sea. And he said, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> uh, you know, I live on water all the time. That's what, that's what I do. Uh, now, uh, the, 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 the image that we see, and by the way, the concept of sea runs through the book of Revelation. You see it 21 times, over and over and over again. But here, the sea uh, just signifies separation from God. I see God on his throne. I know where I am. And there's this magnificent sea of glass, separation between the two of us. As you move on in the book of Revelation, uh, you'll read in chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, and again in chapter 13, verse 1, how Satan's war against the church uh, is, is uh, uh, all tied up in that sea of glass, and the imagery that's there is phenomenal. We'll get there in weeks to come. But when you come to chapter 21, and there's no longer any sea, no longer any sea in the new heaven and the new earth, what does that indicate to you? If separation was described, separation between you and God, 
with the sea, if the sea isn't there, what does that signify to you? No separation. Exactly. Exactly the point. He goes on in verse 6 and verse 7, and he describes some beasts that are described two or three times in Scripture. And uh, let's notice what he says there. Verse 6, he says, In the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Did you ever think about, uh, I remember talking about mom having eyes in the back of her head. Uh, you know, these guys had eyes everywhere. Uh, it says, verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was a flying uh, eagle. Now, Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 15 identifies these four living creatures as cherubim. Cherubim, C-H-E-R-U-B-I-M. Now, cherubim were simply an exalted order of angels associated with God's power. John MacArthur describes these uh, four guys as God's divine war machine. And I like that. Because you see them, they're always bringing about justice. God's justice. We'll learn more about them in weeks to come. Now they represent all, all of God's created world. The lion, wild creatures, ox, domesticated animals, man, that's humans, that's us, eagles, all of God's flying uh, creatures. But I want you to understand that the more we read of Scripture about the God we serve, the more we understand that God is no wimp. God is mighty, and he's powerful, and he is awesome in everything that he does. I would just have you write down Ezekiel chapter 1, and go back over there, Ezekiel chapter 1, and see the description there, uh, the mighty description of, uh, of these four uh, four creatures. We'll study and talk more about them in, in, in weeks to come. But I want to go and move away uh, from the position, God's position in worship as we worship him. And, and what I want you to see by that is God's holiness, God's magnificent attribute, that God is above all, that it's not like uh, as we sit down and worship, it's like, let's just curl up in a nice fire beside God. He's kind of like a grandfather type or Santa Claus, you know. And, and I think, if anything, we have far too, a, uh, too low of a view of the God that we serve. Yes, he loves. Yes, he is merciful. But God is all-powerful, all-powerful, the Lord of hosts. Now let's talk about the posture of worship. That's our posture of worship. Now, the scene ends in verse 8 down to verse 11 uh, in, uh, uh, directed toward God on his throne. And in chapter 4 and 5, there are two great hymns or songs of worship and praise. The first hymn in chapter 4 is about, uh, uh, is about a hymn of creation. We'll see that here in a second. Next Sunday, we're going to learn about the hymn of redemption sung toward Jesus Christ who was slain, who died for us. Now there's several key elements about this song of worship to God, song of uh, creation, hymn of creation that I want you to notice. Number one, and let's just read verse 8 first and then I'll point them out. It says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered all, uh, with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying. Notice, they never stopped singing. They never stopped saying. Worship's not just about what you sing. It's also about what you say. And they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Three elements that I want to point out about their worship 
of Almighty God. Write down, number one, they focus on God's holiness. God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness, one writer said, is the only one of God's attributes repeated in this way. The reason for that is it's a summation of everything else that there is to know about God. Above everything else, God is holy. And you want to understand why God does what he does, sometimes when you don't understand it, look to his holiness, because always there we find the true reality of who God is. Number two, notice God's power. First, God's holiness. Second, God's power. The Lord God Almighty. You realize that 200 times in the Old Testament, God is called the Lord of hosts. The other day, I was kind of, uh, really just kind of discouraged and down. And I read Divine Mentor, uh, my reading program, reading plan every, every morning. And that one particular morning, I, I was just really down. I was just kind of discouraged and kind of down, kind of defeated. And uh, the reading that day led me to 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, and verse 4. And, and David is going to into battle, I think, against the Amalekites. And he's going into battle. And he said, God, uh, should I attack them from the front? And God said, no, don't attack them from the front. I want you to go around behind the, uh, the, the enemy army, and I want you to wait. And this is what the scripture says, 2 Samuel 5, 24. God says, as soon as you hear the sound of marching and the tops of the balsam trees, move, because that will mean the Lord has gone out before you. Folks, it's a terribly dry thing to do Christianity on our own. If all Christianity is, is following a bunch of rules, and hopefully by following all the rules, we get to heaven one day. Man, what a dry, dull, hopeless religion that we have. But folks, I want you to understand this year, uh, this year that the fingerprints of the Lord of God, uh, the Lord uh, of hosts, is present in our lives as we need him and as we seek him. And when his fingerprint is present, his actions are always unexpected. And they're always unexplainable. They're always exceedingly more. They're always beyond and above anything that we can imagine. I ask you this morning, is your life defined regularly by the Lord of hosts showing up in your life and showing his presence and his glory in your life in a way that nobody but God can get, to, get, can get the credit? If the answer to that is no, I, I would suggest to you that a, prob a probable reason. You see, for the person that's never doing or attempting to do anything impossible, the God of the impossible never has to show up. Does that make sense to you? But when you begin stepping out in faith and doing things that are impossible that you could not possibly do on your own, above and beyond anything that you could possibly accomplish, then it is the God of heaven, the God of all power, can show up and transform your life. He's the God of uh, God's holiness. Number two, God's power. Number three, he talks about God's eternal, uh, e eternity or God's eternalness. He was and he is and he is to come. Folks, God is from everlasting to everlasting. Can I get an amen on that? 
God is the Ancient of Days. God is the King of Kings, the Eternal, the Immortal, the Invisible, the Only God. God is not limited by time or space, and He's not hindered by the height or the depth of our problem. God and God alone is eternal God. And worship before Him has to take on a posture that moves us uh, physically and mentally and emotionally. Now, in a series of high-impact action words, John describes the posture of worship. Number one in verse 9, he says, give. He describes worship as giving. He says, when the uh, living uh, creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. Number one, give. Worship is not about receiving. Worship is about giving. It's all about God. He says worship is about giving God glory. Now, we can't add to God's glory. We can't add to God's glory. But can you imagine how much it blesses our Father in heaven when he looks at us in worship and sees a reflection of his glory back to him as we worship? Honor, give honor. That's acknowledging the value of the worth uh, of who you are. Next week, we're going to talk all about the price that God paid for, to deliver us from our sins. You were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 says, do you honor God for the price that he's paid for you? Then he says, give thanks. You realize the word Eucharist, that we get communion from that, simply means thanksgiving? As you gather around the table today, did you give God thanks for what he has done for you in Jesus Christ? Number one, we notice that they give. Number two, we notice that they fall down. This is a fascinating word to me, phrase to me, verse 9 and 10, they fall down. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They fall down. Proud people never fall down. Proud people never bow the knee before God. And perhaps that's why God is so close to the humble, and to those who are broken in heart. Uh, broken in heart. But then it says in verse 10, they laid down their crowns. Remember these 24 elders have crowns. Notice what it says in verse 10, the last part, it says they lay down their crowns before the, before the throne. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. You see, these elders are not concerned about their rights. They're not concerned about their place. They're not concerned about their appearance. As in worship, they lay down their crowns before Almighty God. Do you remember the response of David when the uh, Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem? Do you remember that response? Incredible statement that we read there. Uh, it says uh, uh, that David, man, he danced before the Lord. It was a, a, a sight that his wife didn't like very, like, uh, very well. You remember, Michael? She, she uh, uh, said... You, you're, you're making an idiot out of yourself, David. You're out there dancing and, uh, you know, uh, you're not being a, a very good king. You know, people need to look at a king as a guy with dignity, and you don't have any dignity at all. You're undignified by what you do. And you remember what David says in 2 Samuel chapter 6? He says, if you think I'm undignified now, you just wait, because I will, say it with me, become even more undignified than this. Now I realize in our Western culture, we think worship is about coming and sitting in our pew with a holy look on our face and 
rising every now and then to sing, and very distinguishedly we do that, and we honor God with great words of wisdom before him as we pray. Not David. David said, man, man, I'm dancing before the Lord, and I'm undignified. Let me ask you this question. How long has it been since somebody described your worship before God as undignified? Huh? Has anybody ever described you in worship as undignified? I tell you what, I, I go to football games and baseball games and stuff, you see some of the craziest stuff going on in a ball game uh, that doesn't matter a flip. Before the Lord God Almighty, we do not want to give our crown before him and lay it down. Say, God, it's not about me. It's about you. So the question we end with this morning as we get ready to worship just a little bit this morning is, so what? So what? Mark chapter 12 and verse 30 says, we ought to love the Lord with all of our uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we do that? Go to the next slide there. Uh, I want to throw off uh, five words. Just write them down. All five scriptural words that talk about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, uh, and strength and worship. And what I want you to do is kind of flush for a few minutes your thoughts that you grew up with and the church that you might have grown up with that only worship from shoulders up like mine, all right? I just kind of throw that away and let's listen to some of the words that describe what worship is really all about. Worship ought to be number one with our voice, with our voice. David writes, he says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to the one who has redeemed me. Psalm 71, verse 23. Folks, have you been redeemed? Then let your voice show it when you gather in worship. Second word is the word head. The word head. Psalm chapter 3 and verse 3 says, you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory the lifter of my head. I'll tell you something I've experienced over the last uh, uh, 12 months and understanding what this is all about. There are so many times that I come into worship and I might be down and I might, you know, be weepy. I'm not talking about humbling ourselves before God. That is a powerful thing to do. But how long has it been, and I'm learning this, how long has it been that the lifter of your head has literally lifted your head. Where do you look in worship? Look down, stare at the words on the screen. How about closing your eyes and allowing the lifter of your head to lift your head before him? Man, uh, Charlie gave us the reason this morning. Anybody drive into church today and notice the beautiful, glorious day that we had? Man, the Lord just lifted my head. and I was walking across the parking lot this morning Uh, He lifted my head, and I just said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for such a glorious, glorious day. Third word is hands. Psalmist David writes in Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands to God. From time to time, I hear people say, I don't know we ought to clap in church. I don't know we ought to do that. Well, David did. Clap your hands to God. He also says, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. I praise you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands in the house of the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 4. Oh, I'm not a hand raiser. Somebody might think I'm Pentecostal if I raise my hands. Are you kidding me? 
you're too good to do what David did before God. I ask I ask this question, are you thirsty for God? Does your soul long for him? Or are you satisfied with you and the things you've done? I lift up my hands. Lift up my hands. And a sign of God, I need you. I need you. Try it. It won't kill you. And we won't get the Pentecostal police after you. I promise that. I promise that. Number four, legs. Your legs ought to worship as well. David says, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel to bless the Lord, our maker. Psalm 95, verse 6. You come to church, is it all about you, or do you want to bless the Lord? The scripture says, you take a knee before him. It blesses him. It blesses him. It blesses him. Last word, uh, I've given you uh, four. Uh, voice, head, hands, legs. Last one's feet. Last one is feet. Now, I am a dancing challenge kind of a person. and I, I just want you to understand, uh, before I even go here, uh, what we're going to talk about, I am a dancing challenge. I remember when Carol and I were dating, and I still do. Y'all remember Fonzie? Y'all remember Fonzie in Happy Days? You know, Fonzie never seemed to move his feet when he danced, you know? That's kind of me, you know? I just, when I start moving my feet, I get in trouble all the time. I just look goofy. I kind of look, y'all, anybody remember Elaine on, uh, on Seinfeld? Remember, she was all out there, all, you know, and my kids always make fun of me uh, and, and dancing. But David wrote, uh, writes and he says, uh, our scripture says, David wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might. Folks, have you experienced the glory of God in your life? Maybe you can't dance, but maybe you can shuffle your feet a little bit. Or maybe you can tap a toe. You know, that might be about as far as you can go. Now I realize that there are some folks that cannot tap their feet and clap their hands and sing all at the same time. Okay, I understand that. Uh, but just try it, you know. And if you look silly, look silly before God. By the way, if God's the only one that we're trying to impress and worship, why should we care what anybody around us thinks, okay? Well, let's worship this morning. We've talked about worship. We've talked about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Charlie's going to come right now, and he's going to lead us in, uh, in uh, some songs of worship. And I'll be here at the front during the front end of that. And if you have a decision to make for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be part of the body of Christ, uh, I'll be here at the front, and uh, you can become part of this church. If you want to receive Jesus as Savior of your life, uh, I'd be here at the front. We'd love to uh, talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. Maybe you've come today with a burden that is so deeply entrenched in your life that you just need God's help, and you know that on your own you cannot make it. I would just encourage you to humble yourself Come for the cross, and you're not praying to the cross. You're praying to the Savior who died on the cross very similar in size to this one. And just cry out to him in a humble fashion saying, Lord, please help me with this need. Please help me with this need. If you have a decision to make, let's just stand. Let's worship together. Practice some of the things that we've talked about today. Put them into practice. And bless God's heart as we worship together.